Hello, and welcome to Conference Room C, where the culture meets. I'm your host, Dr. A, and I'm so excited to discuss today's topic, Word is Bond. We've all heard the saying, sometimes it's more about who you know than what you know. When it comes to advancing your career within an organization, social networks are perhaps the most valuable leverage any professional can have. You can know your stuff up, down, and across, but if you don't have champions, mentors, sponsors, and supportive supervisors, then much of your effort may prove to be futile. If someone says they got ahead in their career purely 100% on their own merits, just because of their brain power, they're not being real with you or themselves. Even if someone just mentions your name in a positive context, just one time in your whole career to an influential individual, and it somehow resulted in the forward momentum in your professional life, then that was the power of social networking. The more connections in your network, it goes to reason the more social capital you have. Social capital is just the sum of the relationships in your network. You can think of social capital as similar to real capital, you know, coins, money. While you don't or shouldn't literally buy things with social capital in the workplace, at work, social capital can provide access to additional people, networks, resources, and opportunities you need to get ahead. Here's the thing though, and you probably saw this coming because after all, this show is about exploring the experiences of young black professionals. The thing is that it seems that gaining social capital in some organizations is more challenging for us. Granted, this depends on a number of factors, including industry, status of the employee, etc. But in general, there are additional barriers that emerge when black folks are attempting to build social capital in organizations. Two things come to mind immediately when I think of this challenge. First, as has been discussed throughout this season on Conference Room C, there tends to be persistent institutional barriers that can impact a Black professional's ability to network. Many of these institutional barriers have to do with long-standing biases, both at the individual and organizational levels. Biases about who is confident, who, quote, should, unquote, be in certain positions, and who has the most potential. Second, the younger generations just network differently. Even I can acknowledge this, and I often refer to myself as a non-traditional millennial. But the workspace is very generationally mixed right now, and differences in communication styles and preferences is a real thing. In general, older generations like to get up and knock on someone's door if they have a question, whereas younger generations tend to rely on technology to facilitate conversations in the workspace, like email or instant messenger. Face-to-face interactions can lead to better quality professional connections in the workspace, even if the person you're interacting with is the same age as you. The younger generations can also come off as more ambitious and less patient. Sometimes that can turn off certain folks who they're trying to get buy-in from. I'll talk more about these with the panelists, but before we get there, I want to briefly review the difference between a mentor, sponsor, supervisor, and champion. We should all have in our professional network at least one person from each category if we work within an organization. A mentor is someone you can trust to show you the ropes per se. They may not be the most powerful person in the organization, but they know the job or the organization or the industry and they're politically savvy. Sponsors are very important to have in your network. I cannot overstate this. 
Sponsors are the people in your network who have the power to open doors for you and provide you with even more connections. Sponsors put their reputation and resources on the line to help you advance. And when they do so, people take notice because they typically have a very high level of social capital in a given organization or industry. Then we have supervisors who are important because they often have the legitimate or positional authority to provide you with opportunities or resources that could better position you to build social capital. For instance, funding, training, or conference attendance, allowing you to shadow them at important meetings or assigning you high visibility projects. Lastly, we have champions. While champions may not have formal authority in an organization, they are well-respected, possibly for a number of reasons. For example, tenure, experience, or it could be just because people like them. Champions are important because they are typically eager to spread a good word about you to whoever will listen, and the more people they have to talk to, the better. We'll get more into the differences between these roles when I bring in our panelists, which I will introduce right now. First up, we have Renise Souls. Renise currently serves as the coordinator of educator effectiveness for the elementary schools in the South Carolina School District. Previously, she was an education associate and regional support transformation coach for the South Carolina Department of Education, where she led the early development of statewide implementation guidance for student learning objectives, oversaw induction and mentoring for the state's newest teachers and coached principals in South Carolina's priority schools. Renice earned a Bachelor of Arts in Communication Disorders from Winthrop University, a Master's of Arts in Teaching and an Educational Specialist degree from South Carolina State University and is enrolled in the PhD in Educational Leadership Program at the University of South Carolina. During her PhD program, Bernice plans to study intersectionality and mentorship of African-American women in educational leadership. Before I ask Renice how she's doing today, I just have to tell all the listeners how Renice even ended up in Conference Room C. I was promoting my podcast to a Facebook group, and right away after Renice saw my post, she emailed me and she said, you know, Dr. Mina, I think networking would just be such a great topic to focus on for your podcast. This is an issue, especially in my industry with African-American women administrators. What do you think about this? And I said, not only do I love the idea, I need you on the show. So, Renice, how are you doing today? Hello, Dr. Amina. Thank you so much for having me on. I am doing well, and I'm excited to get into this conversation today. Awesome, awesome. So next up, we have Dr. Daryl Norman Burrow. Dr. Daryl is a 2017 graduate of the National Coalition Building Institute's Leadership Diversity Institute. In 2016, Dr. Burrow completed a Master of Arts in Interfaith Action at Claremont Lincoln University as a Global Peacemaker Fellow where he engaged in research on diversity and inclusion in the workplace as it relates to religion. Dr. Burrow has a doctorate degree with majors in education and executive leadership coaching from A.T. Still University. He is also certified as an executive coach and a certified diversity professional. An alum of the prestigious Presidential Management Fellows Program, Dr. Burrow has over 20 years of management experience and over 60 years of university teaching experience. How are you feeling? Very good. Thank you. Amazing. So I'm just going to dive right into topics and you all can just jump in. You both are very experienced. I'm very fortunate to have both of you here with me to discuss Word is Bond, which of course is a colloquialism in the Black community, meaning what I say is 
is what I mean, that if I say something, you can trust it to be true. So I just thought that was the perfect name for this episode when we're talking about building social capital and what that means for young Black people in the workplace. So in my opener, you heard me describe the differences between mentor, sponsor, supervisor, and champion. To both of you, is there anything you would add? And also, what pitfalls should folks avoid when identifying people in each of those categories? Do you have any words of caution? This is Dr. Barak and go first. One of the things is it's real critical for people of color to really understand what a mentoring relationship is. Often a lot of people approach me because they see me in a prominent role and they look at that relationship as transactional. It's actually about building a relationship. And so a lot of times you find a lot of people for someone that can hook them up, realizing that it's not about a hookup. It's about building a relationship. It's not about a transaction. It's about building a way where they can interact with you on an extended period of time. See, part of the problem people don't really understand is I've built my reputation. If I don't really know you, you're asking my reputation on the line to hook you up. We haven't really developed that level of trust. I haven't really identified what your strengths are. We just haven't spent that time nurturing that right relationship. I think the other thing that's important for all of us to realize is I develop a strategic plan and I try to encourage people to strategically look at because a lot of times we're taught as people of color from our parents and grandparents, well, if you just work hard, everything will be fine. What I found is working hard is only a small percentage of the equation. I mean, the first thing is competence. I mean, it's the difference between do you want a job or do you want a profession? And part of that competence is really mastering your job where you're the expert in the room on a topic. And part of the challenge is we're trying to move so quickly, we're not developing that competence and expertise where we are. And I always tell people, kind of bloom where you're planning. The second element is, I think, is exposure. So even though you might be working hard, if no one in the organization that's influential knows what you do, it really doesn't matter. And then I think the final part is developing the right connection. Thank you. Awesome start, Dr. Darrell. And a couple of things I wanted to follow up on what Dr. Darrell said. The building part of the mentoring relationship, I think, is so crucial. You hit the nail on the head. And not only will learning how to build that relationship help you in that one mentoring-mentee relationship, that's really a transferable skill that you can carry over into other type of professional relationships. And the part you said about developing a strategic plan, I also tell people to do something of this sort. Professional people, we kind of have to see ourselves as a brand, and I hate to even use that word because I think it's overused, but I most often tell people to look at yourself as a business. So go ahead and perform say a SWOT analysis or your analysis of choice on yourself. Like what can you do to improve? What are your opportunities out there? What are your strengths? What are some things that are threatening your success? And I think that's similar to having a strategic plan. It's just having a vision of where you want to take your career beyond um, just working hard because that is something we're taught from the time uh, we're really young. Renise, you want to jump in? Yeah, just briefly, I wanted to kind of speak to Dr. Darrell's point about mentorship and it being a relationship. And I think that's extremely important for folks to remember and to recognize. And also the fact that in the heart of that relationship is trust. And there has to be a two-way trust, trust that the mentee is going to stick to her commitment to working hard and being present in the mentor relationship and also the mentor's relationship 
the trust there that the mentor will be supportive of the mentee and provide the advice and also be a sounding board to the person, the mentee. So I just wanted to kind of add in and speak to that point. Yes, I think trust in any relationship inside and outside the workspace is crucial. You'll learn that crucial is like one of my favorite words, but it really is so important. Can't be overstated. And if you are in that type of mentoring relationship and you become known as someone who can't be trusted, it's going to be really hard for you to move about the organization and build your social network and your social capital. So now that we kind of have levels setted and we all understand the differences between these terms, and we kind of touched on this a little already, but in general, do Black professionals and leaders have to work harder to earn social capital in organizations? What do we think? And why is it if you say yes? You do have to work harder to being in those positions. It was said before, you'll work twice as hard to get half of what's due to you. And I think it is because of the lack of the social capital. We don't always, as people of color, it's a challenge for us to see executive leadership or leadership in those high positions that look like us or that we can identify with. So at times it is difficult for you to develop that social capital initially. So I do think that that's definitely a barrier for young African-American and young professionals of color. You had something, Dr. Darrell? I think, again, you have to be intentional. Like, it's harder for us because no one's just going to pluck us up as a prodigy. So part of being intentional is, again, it's a difference between do you want a job or do you want a profession? And that starts with your credentials and your expertise. Part of the challenge is we want to just be acknowledged for our work, but I think you have to be a little bit more intentional behind it. For example, when I was in graduate school, I knew I didn't have an audience with the senior leaders, but I used graduate school as an excuse to set up meetings because I said, well, one of my assignments in my class is we got to interview a senior leader. And so that way, my boss didn't feel threatened. Daryl's trying to go around me and meet with a senior leader. What does he want to meet with a senior leader for? What was good for me was it gave me an audience with that senior manager where that manager said, oh, I met one of your employees, Daryl Barroza, in graduate school. So it allowed him an opportunity for them to get to know me. The other point I want to make is I feel like the only job security for a person of color is to become an expert at your job, to become the go-to person. If you're the go-to person and you're the expert in your particular field, it's hard for them to get rid of you. It's hard for them to ignore you. And a lot of times we just want to show up, but part of becoming that expert is that self-directed learning. So if you're in HR, you've got to join that person's organization, or you've got to think about graduate school, or you've got to think about, yeah, I'm going to read three articles a month on what's cutting edge in human resources, or I'm going to look at some podcasts on human resources to really know my craft, or I'm going to take that course on Coursera to really advance where I'm at. And so for us, that's twice as hard has to come in. It's what you're doing in that workplace, but it's that self-directed drive that you have outside of work to make you an expert that people can't ignore. And I completely agree. It's almost like that having to work 10 times hard has evolved into something new now that we are as Black professionals getting opportunities to be in spaces we weren't always allowed into. So maybe it doesn't look like staying extra hours at work in the office, but we're still putting in that work behind the scenes that a lot of times people who aren't professionals of color don't understand. And Renise, I couldn't help but think of you when Dr. Darrell was sharing his example, 
because from reading your bio and getting to know a little more about you, you clearly have some very specific expertise in working with these principles. So is his talk about having to really master one thing and put your all into it, does that resonate with you? And have you felt that way in your career? Absolutely. He was spot on in regards to really making sure that you are intentional about developing yourself and developing your skill set. Personally, in certain positions that I've been in, particularly when I was working at the state level, which is all new work, I had to immerse myself in state regulations and state guidelines so that I could speak confidently and competently about the guidelines and the law surrounding my work. And that's something I had to do. And it was really important to me. And I was very intentional about making sure that I then became an expert in our state law surrounding our work. Because as a woman of color and as a young woman of color, this was a few years ago, I had to be credible because I was put in front of a lot of different audiences, a lot of different people around the state. So I had to be knowledgeable and credible and quick on my feet so that I was seen as competent, period, in some situations. And that worked in my benefit because then I began to develop that reputation of Renice knows what she's talking about, or you can always call Renice and get the information you need. Even when I was coaching principals, just knowing and being up to date on what current best practices were for schools and transforming schools and working with teachers and developing teachers, I had to stay abreast of the best practices and the current trends in education so that, again, I was seen as being credible to the principals that I was working with. So Dr. Darrell's point, again, hit home. Not to beat a dead horse, really, but I really want to drive this point home because I feel as though this is something that's really, you know, it's almost like a disenfranchisement. People who are not familiar with this type of struggle, they might listen to this and say, well, we all have to study to become confident so we can be seen as confident or so that we can be seen as credible so that we know what we're talking about. But it just reminds me of a story from my dissertation and conversations I have all the time with people in actually the second episode of this season of Conference Room C, we had a discussion about a glass cliff, how you really have as a Black professional, then the higher and higher you move up the proverbial ladder, you really have no room for error. So it's like the extra stress and the degree to which you have to be perfect in a lot of situations. And I'll just quickly tell the story that one of my participants told in a dissertation, she was comparing herself to one of her white male counterparts in the workplace. And this is a black woman. They had equal positional authority. So he didn't outrank her or anything. But she just said she noticed time and time again, he would come into meetings and be able to say things and no one would question where he's getting the information from, question the strategy, nothing. And because she knew what she was doing in her job, 200%, she could easily see the holes in his arguments, but he would never get questioned. But the minute she would open her mouth to have a strategy or a way forward or something, she'd get a million questions. So she always felt like she had to be extra prepared because she knew that was coming. It's more than just a double standard. It's like a hundred times standard. So I just want to drive that point home because it's really, I see as such a huge part of what we go through as Black professionals. So moving along, as we talk about sponsors, those people who are really going to put themselves online for you, provide resources if need be, like put their reputation out there, kind of like what Dr. Darrow was saying earlier. 
What are the two biggest barriers to young Black professionals securing those sponsors in the workspace? One of the things that is a real issue that we don't always talk about is a lot of what happens to us that puts us on the outside looking in is I call a product of in-group and out-group bias. And so it's subtle. It may not be intentional in terms of how I'm excluded, but if you don't identify with me, you don't identify with me socially or professionally, or that I had one time with a gentleman is, you know, I actually with him about privilege one time. And he's like, what do you mean by privilege? And I said, he lived in Huntsville, Alabama. He was a senior VP with a Fortune 5 company. And I said, okay, when you're in your boardroom, how many people look like you and how many people look like me? And he said, well, there's zero that looks like you. He said, tell me about your neighborhood. I live in a gated community and there's a golf course. I said, how many of your neighbors look like me or how many of them look like you? He said, well, most of my neighbors look like me. I said, your school system's good. How many people in your school system look like you or look like me? Well, most of the kids in my school look like my kids. And I said, so if I want that lifestyle that you have, I have to navigate your world and be a minority. You never have to navigate mine. And so part of the challenge with that is people tend to interact with and spend time with the people that they're most comfortable with. And so that's really where it starts to begin, because if they don't identify with us and see us, it's much harder. And we almost have to bend over backwards to make them feel comfortable to make them in group. It's hard, but it's required sometimes if you want that sponsor or that mentor to be someone who doesn't look like you. And a lot of times it's hard for us to find someone who does look like us. So we have to navigate those waters. Dr. Darrell, I think that's a great way to illustrate privilege and the bias. I'm going to circle back to you after Renice jumps in, just so you can give me one example of something leaders in an organization can do to but facilitate the relationship of finding a sponsor for people who may be the product of in-group, out-group bias, as you stated. So I'm going to circle back to you in just a second. Renise, what are two challenges or barriers to young Black professionals securing sponsorships in the workspace? The first is actually very similar to Dr. Darrell's. I think in a number of situations and circumstances, we don't see ourselves represented in our organization's current leadership. So there's a lack of being able to identify with an African-American woman or a Latino man or a person that has a similar identity to you, whether it's culturally, class-wise, or some other social construct. So that is definitely a barrier because if I'm not in that group or don't have that social capital or that social connection as others, then I'm automatically left out. Another barrier, I think, really is just fear. And it's the fear of reaching out to someone because you don't want them to think that you are in competition with them or are competing or going after their jobs. I've been in situations professionally where I didn't seek out certain mentorships from supervisors because there was always that underlying fear that someone else might be coming for my job or want this project over me or want to be recognized or put in front of this senior staff member over me. So I think it's that fear of competition and that fear of just not really knowing how to navigate that social and that cultural space, as well as not seeing representation of yourself in your current organization's leadership. And I think, Renice, that fear is so real and it can really hold us back from 
going for opportunities that we know we deserve. I recently had a conversation with someone explaining to her why a young Black woman in an organization that all of the top level leadership does not look anything like her or does not have similar cultural experience to her would maybe feel like there was never any way she could become a leader in that organization. And when I tell you this woman was looking at me like I had two heads, like it's a really uncomfortable conversation. And as someone who's privileged that doesn't have to think about those type of things, it's not something that they readily want to talk about. And honestly, in a lot of instances, they just don't get it at first. But they're conversations that needed to be had. Now, Dr. Darrell, I'm actually not going to circle back to you because I looked at my notes and I realized we're going to get to it a little later in the show. So I do want to move on to the next question. Now, Dr. Darrell, you opened up with some tips in the beginning of the show, but what are some more tips to the both of you for seeking out a mentor and building that relationship? So I believe you need to have multiple mentors. I always believe that you have a technical mentor in your field. I also think you need to have a outside of your immediate organization who's can tell you an overall bird's eye view of what's happening in the organization. And I think the way you do it is, I think in a subtle way, you have to appeal to that person's ego. Like it would be me going to Dr. A, listen, I'm new in this organization and I'm trying to find I can contribute. I know you're very successful in that realm. You're very accomplished. I know you're probably busy, but I wonder if we could sit down and talk about that or maybe you could share some insight or some tips to me. That's really how you start. The organizations that are really self-aware and intentional. When I worked in the federal government, we actually had a formal mentoring. One of the things that we did was we solicited mentors and we did a thing like speed dating. We did speed mentoring. So we had a 60 minute lunch and learn where you had an opportunity to interact with 10 mentors and mentees, spent 10 minutes together talking to try to see whether it would be a good bond or good relationship. But that's because we had to do that on our own and we had formal structure. A lot of organizations don't have that. I think the other thing that's critical beyond approaching people is follow up. I can't tell you how many times people have asked for my card and I've never heard from them. The other thing I think please and thank you is a lost art. I go to Dollar Tree. I tell people I go to Dollar Tree. I have thank you cards in my desk. I send a handwritten thank you card. Now I've had Younger millennials say, well, I could just send an email. Well, to me, something subtle makes a better impact if I send a handwritten thank you card that says private and confidential, and I'm sending that to you in our office mail or I'm mailing that to you. And again, please, please and thank you is a lost art. And I think if you're gracious about it, those are the things that are really critical in terms of you building those relationships. Such simple tips, but so important. And I have to tell you, Dr. Earl, you just told all my business especially with the follow-up. I'm so bad at that. I've become better over the years because I intentionally, like said, be intentional. I've intentionally worked on it. And then thank you cards. I'm definitely one of those millennials like, oh, I could just text or send an email. However, I have also implemented the thank you card method. It's just, people just love, it's like you took the extra effort. Even when I do it to fellow millennials or even younger, there's still just a great reaction that I made that extra effort to thank them for whatever they helped me with. Renice, what do you think about this? I think to kind of add on to that is one thing that's important when you're seeking out leadership is to present your best self and to present yourself as being consistent and serious about mentor, about receiving mentorship from someone. So for example, if you want to have somebody in your organization's leadership serve as a mentor for you, 
why don't you volunteer to serve on one of their projects so that they get an opportunity to interact with you a little more closely, see your work style, see the value add that you bring to the organization, and then they see that commitment, and then we'd be more willing to be your mentor versus just kind of cold coming to someone without any previous experience with them and engaging with them. And it's important to kind of appeal to that person's business sense. So go to them and ask for business advice. So not necessarily looking for their influence and the influence they may have in the organization, but go to someone for business advice and advice surrounding your particular profession. So those two things, making sure you present your best self is being consistent and serious about mentorship and engaging in this relationship, which will help improve the likelihood that they'll mentor you. Renice, I love both those points, but especially your second one about asking business advice. I never quite thought of it that way, but that really is a good soft opener. I mean, no one ever wants to feel like they're just being sought out for what they can do for you. So even if that is your end game, there's never any harm in having a kind of a soft opener. And you may actually learn some really important skills or tips in the process. So I think that's a great point. In my dissertation research, social support was identified as a key factor in maintaining a positive view of one's professional self. For young Black professionals who don't have an embedded social network at work, what are some ways they can overcome this potential barrier? One of the things I think is important to do if you don't have a network there in your organization is to look and seek networks outside of your organization but related to your work. So because I'm in education, I would look at some of our state and local and regional professional organizations to help develop some relationships and a network there. That helps put you in the know. It helps keep you abreast of current trends and what's happening in your field, which helps, again, to sharpen your capacity. It gets you in front of more people. The more people you know, the more people know you. And they can speak to the value that you add to the organization or to the group and get your name out in front of other people. So if you don't have a social network there in your particular organization, seek some networks outside so you can open up to those opportunities and open up to meeting more people. That's so true, Renice. And I have this conversation often. I also believe that you should have all types in your network, all types of preferences, beliefs, races, abilities. But sometimes I do have some friends and colleagues who, because of the type of work they do, they specifically want another Black professional in that work. And sometimes they have to go outside of their organization to find that because they are the only Black person in their organization at the time. So I think that's a great point. Dr. Darrell, you want to jump in? For me, I think obviously you've got to be in whatever field you're in, that professional organization. I mean, you've got to be a member. You want to be part of that. And that's a way that kind of build that network. I think one that a lot of people sleep on is LinkedIn. You know, a lot of us as people of color, we spend so much time on Facebook and Instagram. But I tell people you're making a mistake if you're not spending 90% of your time on social media on LinkedIn. I mean, I've met some powerful, influential people of color on LinkedIn and being part of LinkedIn groups and sharing groups around my profession that I think is real important. I found you on LinkedIn. <laughs> I'm doing well. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so to me, that's an avenue that you can leverage, I think. And I think a part of it is doing research. So, you know, I have a firm belief that part of what you want to do in developing these relationships is 
You want to kind of role model. So a lot of times people say, I want to be in an academic career. They're looking at certain schools, and I try to tell them, okay, if you're looking at that particular school, and it may be a for-profit school, and they want to teach at Ohio State, I told them, well, you need to reverse engineer. You need to go look and see, is there anyone in Ohio State that has gone to that type of school? If that's your end game. And though you want to start to look at people that you identify with, the people that the next level you be at, and then start them and look at them, Google them. They're in this association or they're part of this organization. And I Google it. I look at people's profile on LinkedIn. I'm like, oh, they have that cert. Oh, they're part of that organization. I Google it and try to find out what it is. Because I'm a firm believer that part of that relationship of being embraced and accepted is people in a country club let in members that look like them. So maybe you might not physically look like them, but if you're in the associations, they are. If you're doing the same type of activities they are, you will look like them on paper, even though you might not physically look like them. So that little bit of research and that little bit of networking thing is, I think, real in terms of kind of building those relationships. Now, Dr. Darrow, this concept of, it's just so interesting to me what you just said about looking like them, the dominant culture on paper. How far does this get people of color, Black professionals in their career? I mean, what does that look like? I mean, it's so fascinating to me because there's so many instances of Black professionals going to Yale or your choice of Ivy League school, whatever you want to insert, Harvard, and doing this and having those activities and still being locked out of certain opportunities. So what does that actually look like in operation? Here's part of the issue, right? You know, part of us is this whole assumption that, okay, if we go to this school that they're going to knock on our door like Publishers Clearinghouse and with the prize patrol with the $10 million check. I mean, yes, going to the school is fine, but a lot of times when we're in that school, we still need to leverage those networks when we're the student at Harvard. And it gets back to something Nee said about putting your best foot forward. A lot of times we don't really realize that some of our classmates in our class are going to be in a position where they can hire us. And so when they're seeing us interacting in that class, right, I hate that we have to make other people feel comfortable with us. It's almost like we have to go an extra mile to reach out and extend an olive branch to them. But in a lot of ways, we do. It's just the nature of how it is. And so when we're in that class, if we ourselves a certain way, like for me, when I was in grad school, they didn't require when I went to my class that I wore a suit, but I wore a suit, right? I made sure I was early. I made sure my presentations were impeccable because one of the things I found was there were certain people in that class, I was building my brand. And part of that process is what I call your hall file. So anywhere you are, there's your personnel file. This is your job title, who you report to, et cetera. But everywhere you go, there's a hall file. And your hall file is what do people about you in the hallway? And that's where these little subtle interactions, you're building that brand, you're establishing poly brand. If I come in the room and I meet with you and Renice and I put a Mercedes key down on the table, there are certain assumptions you're going to make because there's a Mercedes key. It might be true, it might not be true, but there's certain things. So a lot of times in your interaction, you're building that brand and you're building those relationships. And I think that's critical. It's important for us. We're going to move on, but I just have to say, <laughs> and I usually try not to push back on my guests too much. Dr. Darrell, I hear what you're saying. I appreciate that view. For me, and 
for the reason that I started this show, I just always want to drive home the point of authenticity. And this conversation is one that I've had many a times with people of many different ages. And one time I was in a diversity training and we were having conversations similar to this. And it was mainly focusing on how you dress at work, you know, how you wear your hair as people of color, et cetera, et cetera. And finally, I just had to stop all the arguing that was going on in the room. And I said, look, if someone wants to present themselves a certain way in order to make themselves more palatable, because that's what you're doing, to the dominant culture so that they can get certain opportunities, I don't fault that person. That's what they want to do. For me, I've decided that I'm always going to bring my authentic self to the workspace. I'm not trying to present anything that's going to make me more palatable, either you like what I'm giving you or you don't. I'm always going to be professional. That's just me. But I'm not going to switch it up. And I know, I acknowledge that because I've made that decision, I have lost out on some opportunities. I can wholeheartedly state that. But I'm fine with that and I have peace with it. So I think it's so interesting for the listeners out there to hear both of these point of views and kind of just decide where they fall on the line or maybe be empowered or take some advice if they want to move a little differently. So Dr. Darrell, I definitely appreciate your point of view. Let me clarify. Mm -hmm. I wasn't saying to be something that you're not. I think it's important to be yourself, be comfortable in yourself. But I'm just saying that a lot of times when we're navigating as people of color, we have to code switch all the time. Like there's certain conversations that we're having right now that we wouldn't have if we were in an all-white environment to the comfort level that we're having right now. So we all code switch to some extent. I'm not saying don't be authentic and don't be the real you, but you've got to understand the dynamics of what's happening around you. And I respect where you're coming from because I've been in that predicament too. Yes, and I think it's important to take your own temperature. It is important to understand the dynamics. It is true we all code switch to some extent. So decide how far are you going to push the envelope? Me, myself, I'm an envelope pusher. Dr. Daryl, you seem like an envelope pusher too. So we get each other. I see you. Renice, I want to bring you back into the conversation with this next question. We talked about maybe young Black professionals not having the social network embedded in their organization. But for those who do have a healthy social network, what are the top three things that they can do to leverage their current professional network? So one of the things I think is important and may sometimes go unnoticed or unsaid is that you really just have to be visible and be active and engaged in your network to be there and for people to know you and know your name and know the qualities that you bring to the organization. So I think that's one that's definitely you have to do is be there and be present and active. Another thing I think that helps you leverage your professional network is I think about this, you have your capabilities and your intelligence and everything you bring to the table and you have a mentor or someone to sponsor you that helps kind of get you to the door. But when you get to the door, you actually have to do the work to get through the door. So don't rest on your laurels and rely on other people or think that people are going to just see your merit and the hard work you do and just give you away. You have to actually push through and make a way for yourself sometimes and push through that door. Again, don't be afraid to showcase your skills and let people that you work with, let them know what you can do. I think, again, back to times where I've worked in certain organizations or certain even school districts, and I bring certain skill sets. 
although my job didn't require me to do training, I've made sure I let my supervisor know that, well, you know, I've conducted trainings before for large groups, or I've helped facilitate certain trainings and professional developments. This is something that I can do and I can bring to and add to our organization, add value to our group. So don't be afraid to get out there and market yourself and the skills that you bring and add to your organization. I think marketing yourself is probably one of the best skills that you can, I mean, I spend a crazy amount of hours probably at this point, just reading marketing books online and like articles and watching marketing videos and listening to marketing podcasts, just because those skills are so transferable in any situation. I mean, I also like what you said, Renise, about showcasing your skills. I think a lot of times when we are good at something, we're so fearful of how it may appear to others. Like, well, they think I'm good at it too. Am I really that good at it? So we don't really put ourselves on front street or sell ourselves that well. And I think it's so important to know how to sell yourself and your skills. What do you think, Dr. Darrell? How can young Black professionals leverage their current professional networks? I always say your network is like church or praying, right? So there's some people that only want to pray or go to church when they're in trouble. But if you're a spiritual, you know you got to pray and you got to go to church consistently and faithfully. So it gets back to the comment earlier about being present. I also think you got to add value to your network. Part of that mentor-mentee relationship is that person might be the COO, but they're still, if you're doing research, there's ways you can add value. For example, when I worked in government, our CFO happened to be African-American. I wanted to have a relationship with him. So we talked. So one of the things he kind of shared with me was he's like, yeah, I always wanted to go to graduate school, but I just got so busy. And so he said, yeah, I see you have a lot of education. I've seen your bio. And he shared that. So one of the things I immediately did was went back to my office and printed out these flexible graduate senior executives in government, printed it out, put in an envelope with a thank you note and dropped it off to his secretary. And that was the catalyst that built the relationship. So however you add value to your network, I think is important because if you're only that person to get, get, get and not give, 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 people are going to start to recognize, hey, Daryl only shows up when he wants or needs something. He's not really contributing to this relationship. So I think that's important too. Yes, I love that example you just shared and how you just seem to be able to seize opportunities like that. And I think sometimes we don't realize that no matter what level we're at, we can add value to the mentor-mentee relationship. Just one last question, because we do have to get on to the Dear Dr. A portion of the show. So lastly, and Renice, I'll let you kick it off, if you would. What is the organization's responsibility in providing sponsorship and mentorship opportunities to young Black professionals or individuals of other protected classes? So I think one of the most important things that an organization can do is ensure, number one, that they have quality mentors who are willing to serve as mentors to young professionals. You don't want people who were voluntold to do this. You want people who are willing and are actively seeking opportunities to support other young professionals. So making sure that you have quality folks that want to do the job. And then two, I think making sure that if you're the person overseeing the mentoring, make sure that you have a representative pool of mentors. For me, I used to oversee mentoring for teachers in the state and do so in my current role. And we always like to make sure we have mentors that represent 
all of our teachers, whether it's racially or culturally, whether it's related to their background or what they teach, but making sure that you've got mentors that mirror the people that are working for you. So women, having enough women in your group or having enough people of color or thinking about more veteran or more seasoned folks who come into your profession or come into your organization, have mentors to help support them or support people who are career changers. So it is really about having a core cadre of mentors that are both capable and willing to support young professionals. And then I think lastly, one of the best things an organization can do is make sure that you have a culture that fosters and supports mentoring. So there has to be that buy-in from your executive leadership or, you know, in a school district, buy-in from your superintendent and other district administrators so that people see that mentoring is valuable and that it is valued in that organization. Because in my field, and I'm sure it's in every field, the mentoring aspect is the number one recruitment and retention tool for us keeping teachers and keeping professionals in our buildings. So making sure you have those people and you put the time, the effort, they are able to support others, I think is what uh, responsibility of the organization. Great points, Renice, especially about having people who want to and are able to mentor. I've heard so many horror stories about mentoring relationships that just have gone wrong for a number of reasons. So making sure you foster that culture in the organization, like you said, and really have a solid mentoring program of even a formal one, as Dr. Darrell alluded to earlier. You want to jump in, Dr. Darrell, what's the organization's responsibility in providing these sponsorship and mentorship opportunities? You've got to formalize it. So when I ran a program, we had training for mentors and training for mentees. We had roles and responsibilities and we had contracts so that people kind of knew kind of how this works. I really think the organization has supported, like the way I got our organization to be convinced about it was Gallup puts out a survey of employee disengagement across organizations, billions of dollars with disengaged employees. And I explained to them that if you want to be the most effective organization, you've got to tap into the knowledge and expertise of everyone in your organization. And you've got to find a way to leverage it. Otherwise, I gave the analogy that we're playing basketball against the Lakers, right? LeBron has four other players with him, you're only playing with two because you haven't been able to leverage your women or your people of color over 50. And so if you put it there in that business term where they understand the value and importance, then they're more likely to be behind it. The organizations that really get it are the ones that even attach things like mentoring and diversity to performance evaluations, where they're putting performance measures on senior leaders those are the real progressive organization where they're saying, okay, part of our performance we're going to evaluate you is what activities have you done in the last year in mentoring? What activities have you done to promote diversity and inclusion in the organization? So I think those things are the real critical, important thing. I agree. There's nothing like having something, your performance evaluation to motivate you to get on top of it. This has been a wonderful discussion. I love hearing both of your different perspectives. It's so important that we're able to have these conversations with each other and just get fresh new points of views and ideas. Now on to the Dear Dr. A segment. I'm going to read a story that was written in from a listener, and then I'll just get both of your takes on it. Dear Dr. A, I'm facing a dilemma at my job. My job is in need of additional help with working with community members and clients who speak Spanish. 
My job is aware that I am bilingual and would like for me to help and assist other departments with this matter. I don't mind helping my job. However, I'm not getting compensated for using my skill set. When I asked for compensation, I was denied. Also, they informed me that this is a new duty that I have to do. What should I do in this situation? I'll go first. I think this is a tough one because we all get stuck in the black hole that's called other duties as a sign sometimes. But if they are informing her that this is a new duty, then I think there may be some wiggle room to negotiate here. This story reminds me of one of my experiences, and I'm so glad this person is questioning this because when I was much younger, working in nonprofit, literally the exact same thing happened to me. And I ended up having to go to a Catholic center, which was far away from my normal place of duty because I'm also bilingual. And so I would go there and interact with patients who spoke Spanish as their first language and couldn't understand much English. And I never even thought to question getting compensated more for this because it obviously was not in my position description when I started the job. So I just thought it was a good thing that she's even really trying to look out for herself and understanding that this is out of the scope of what she was hired to do. But I'm interested to hear your take on it. Renish, you want to go ahead? Sure. I understand the black hole of duties as assigned. And I understand, you know, not necessarily having free time and you want to be compensated for your work. But in some situations, I think you have to kind of bite the bullet and see this as an opportunity to showcase your skills and to help your organization develop phenomenal program that supports the community engagement and the engagement with Spanish-speaking stakeholders and just use this as an opportunity to leverage your skills and to showcase yourself. Although you might not be compensated for it now, there's perhaps something on the back end that may benefit you. So this might put you in front of some other organizations or put you in front of other people in your organization that are influential that might be able to make some decisions or afford you some other opportunities. So it is unfortunate that you may not be getting compensated for it, See it as an opportunity to leverage your skills and show, again, your value. I think that's an excellent point. And to something Dr. Darrell said earlier, I definitely would put a strategy in place to be able to leverage this other duty on the back end. Dr. Darrell, what about you? You know, I always feel that exposure is critical. It's a critical part of the equation. And so if this gives you an opportunity to get exposure, I agree that it's something you bite the bullet and do. A lot of times you be short-sighted to think, okay, I want to nickel and dime everything. Part of this is what I call blooming where you're planted. So I'm here. Now I'm trying to find a way to bloom. It might afford you an opportunity to develop new skills. One of the things in my career, I was asked to do some outreach at some other organization. And I didn't have a great boss who was an advocate for me. And so one of the things it allowed me to do was interact with some people outside of my group. And then in return, I just encouraged them if they thought I did a good job to tell my whole management chain about that. Well, as an end result, I had all these emails and letters that were artifacts that later down the road, when it came time for me to leverage an exceptional or above average performance evaluation, I had these artifacts to show it. That allows you exposure or allows you to develop your skills or advance your skills or broaden your network, I think you really have to try to find a way to leverage it to your benefit. I think you both gave good examples and actionable steps. This has been an awesome conversation. I do 
truly believe that the listeners will gain so much good advice from this conversation and things they can implement in the workspace the day after they hear it. I just think it's so important for us to continue to have these conversations about what it means to have these mentors and sponsors and how we can leverage our social networks and build our social capital. So Dr. Darrell, Renise, it's goodbye for now, but it's been a pleasure having you in Conference Room C. I'll see you on the outside. 